You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 13 this evening. That's Mark, chapter 6. Verses 7 through 13. Obviously, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. And tonight, we come to an account of Jesus sending out his apostles for ministry. Uh, In the text before us this evening, Jesus is going to send out the 12 for a short-term mission, right? I'm not quite sure exactly how long, but this is not a long-term thing. This is a short-term thing. What begins in verse 7 is actually ended in verse 30, where the 12 come back to Jesus. Um, on this short-term mission. But some of the things that we're going to see, just a little out, get out in front of this, some of the things that we're going to see Jesus command the 12 uh, for this specific mission are not meant to be binding for all time and on all Christian ministry. You'll, I'll, I'll highlight those things. Uh, and some aspects of the mission that he sent them on were just for the 12, right? just for the apostles, um, namely their power They're empowering to do miracles. But nevertheless, there are still principles in this passage that we can learn from and apply to the church uh, today and apply to ourselves as disciples of Jesus. Um, Now, as I've noted many times before, and will continue to do so throughout this series for who knows, my my daughter might be walking uh, by the time that we're done going through Mark. We've been in it since April. We're in chapter 6, right? Who knows what's going to happen? But Mark has two themes, right? I've noted them before. I'm going to keep reminding you of them. Mark's two themes that dominate this gospel account are, one, who is Jesus Christ? And two, what does it mean to be his disciple? Right? And those twin themes loom large over nearly every passage in this book. And this evening, we're going to get yet another picture of of what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um. As, as we see Jesus call and commission his apostles for a short, short-term mission trip, we're going to see some general principles that apply to all disciples of the Lord Jesus. And I say that because I think it's very easy to see and not a stretch at all to see that the commissioning of the 12 for this short-term mission trip is really just a, a foreshadowing and small picture of the great commission that now belongs to the church. Right, so what does it mean to be a disciple? I think the passage that we're going to read here in just a moment tells us five things about being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and give you my outline. Here, here they are, the five things. One, a disciple is called to be sent out. Two, a disciple is to be focused, primarily focused on the work the Lord has given them. Third, A disciple is to expect rejection and know how to handle it. Fourth, a disciple proclaims or preaches. And fifth, a disciple goes. A disciple goes. And I I pray that we will all take seriously the examples and principles that we see in our text this evening. And what I mean by that is that we wouldn't just acknowledge them to be biblical and true, but that we would actually apply them to our lives Right? And I know some, some of you can already see where this sermon's going. Like, great, another sermon on evangelism. Right? I know that's what some of you are thinking. Right? But I'll just give you this. This is not my notes. Right? I'm, I'm going off the cuff. Who knows what's going to happen? Um, there was a, a, a man who followed George Whitfield around in the 1700s. Uh, George Whitfield was actually more famous than any 
president or anyone at that time. It's actually said that he preached to like 80% of all the colonists back in the 1700s. People knew what George Whitfield looked like more than George Washington. Um, but anyhow, Whitfield was a circuit preacher. He preached all the time, and a man followed Whitfield around to three or four different sermons in different areas, and he approached Mr. Whitfield and said, Sir, I've heard you preach the same sermon three times in a row now. And Mr. Whitfield looked at him and said, Well, are you perfectly obeying what I preached? He said, no, then I will continue to preach it, (laughs) right? So I know this is another sermon on evangelism, but I pray that you would listen and actually seek to apply this to your life. You know, it's very easy to come to church each week and just digest information and learn without ever growing, right? Now, I want to be clear, growth is not less than learning, but it is more than just learning, True Christian growth comes by submission to an application of what you learn. Anything short of submission and application is empty. It's vanity. Right? Something that I really want us all, myself included, to really try to get our minds around is that God has not given us word, his word to only make us good theologians. That's part of the reason why he's given us his word. But he's given us his word in order to instruct us in following him. To, as the psalmist put it in Psalm 23, guide us in the paths of righteousness for his namesake, that he might be glorified. So may God help us to be attentive and sensitive and submissive to his word this evening. Now, if you would, as a sign of respect to our God, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. And he, Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our patient and loving Father, we come before you this evening seeking to learn from you as we sit under the ministry of your word. Please, Lord, teach us. Now, open our ears to listen, open our minds to understand, and open our hearts to receive your word in faith and repentance and obedience. Lord, you alone can do these things in us. You alone can teach us and change us. So we are at your mercy to do it. But we know and we believe that you are merciful towards your people. So we know that you will hear us now and condescend to enlighten us, convict us, and grant us faith because you are gracious to those who belong to you. So please, Sovereign Lord, work in us this evening and bring glory to your holy name. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. All right, now we've come to a point in the Gospel of Mark, in Jesus' ministry, where he decides to put the 12 apostles to good use. Right? Jesus is not going to be the only preacher among them anymore. Instead, he's going to send them out to preach his message and do miracles in his name. So that's where we're going to begin, our first heading. A disciple is called 
in order to be sent out. Or you could say he, a disciple is called to Christ that he might be commissioned by Christ. Verse 7, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So he calls them to himself and he sends them out. But I want to make a note here. I said in the introduction that some things in this text are specific to the apostles. Right? The 12 that are mentioned here are specifically and specially called in a special way. You'll remember back in chapter 3, verse 14, if you don't, I'll remind you, that Jesus called them and set them apart as apostles. So Jesus set them in a very special, very high, very authoritative, and very temporary office. Right? The office of apostle. Now an apostle is one who has been specifically set apart and commissioned by Christ to be an apostle. In other words, Jesus has to very literally, specifically choose someone to be an apostle. And an apostle is one who is sent by Jesus to speak in his name. Right? Apostle means sent one. The apostle is one who is given authority. When the apostle speaks, Jesus is speaking. And he is speaking Jesus' message. Right, that's the idea. He's not just a witness. The apostle's not just a witness, but the apostle has all the authority of the one who sent them. Right? In this case, all the authority of Jesus himself. This makes the apostles very unique. When they spoke in their office of apostle, Jesus was speaking through them. Right? This is not something that we can claim today. This gave the apostles authority over the church that no one else could have nor could have again. When they spoke, Jesus was speaking. And the apostles were given special power as well. We see that in this verse. They were given power to cast out demons, right? Authority over the unclean spirits. And if you read in verse 13, we see that they were given power to also miraculously heal people. This is also something that was unique to the apostles and those under their immediate oversight, right? They were given the power to perform miracles in order to, just like Jesus did for the same reason that Jesus did miracles, to validate and verify that their message indeed was from God. And these apostles were given this authority and power so that after Christ had ascended to heaven, after completing the work of atonement for his people and being raised from the dead, that they could then, the apostles, establish the foundation for his church. So these twelve, minus Judas, who would be replaced by Matthias, and plus the Apostle Paul, who Jesus handpicked post-ascension, these 12 were to play a central role in establishing the church, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.20, I believe it is, that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Right? So Jesus gave them special authority and special power. Now, a brief note on that. There are no more apostles today. Right? That office ceased with the death of the final apostle. You remember, Jesus had to specifically choose you for that office, and there are other criterion that we can look at, or criteria. Criteria is the plural. Looking at you, English teachers, you're of no help to me. Anyway, um, but there, there are other standards uh, to be an apostle, but remember, Jesus has to specifically call you to be one, and he's not doing that anymore. So just, just so you know, if you ever come across someone on Facebook that's named apostle so-and-so, feel free to ignore them, because they're not an apostle. They're probably crazy. Um, and not only that, but the miraculous gifts that marked the apostolic age have also ceased. The message of the apostles have been verified and accepted. And the message of the apostles have now been enshrined forever in sacred scripture and needs no further validation from God. 
Okay, so just wanted to make that clear. There are no more apostles, nor are the gifts of the apostles still in operation. But these 12, they had been with Jesus, had they not? I'm going to go more broad, more general things about the apostles. He had called them to himself in chapters 1 through 3. He had picked them. He had graciously chosen them and called them. And he taught them as well. Right, this is between the first and second year of Jesus' public ministry. They have spent a good amount of time with him. They had heard him teach often. They had been privately taught by him as well, as we learned in chapter 4 with the parables. They had spent much time with him, walking from place to place, talking with him. They knew him. They knew what he taught, and they had seen his power, right? They had witnessed firsthand his miracles. And now, after being taught for a season and coming to understand Jesus and his message, on a decent level at least, they are then sent out by Jesus. They were called to him by grace, made his disciples, taught, and then sent out. And these things are true of us as well as them. Though we are not apostles and have no gifting to do miracles or cast out demons with a word, the broad things here are the same for us. Both groups, whether apostles or regular disciples like us, have been graciously called by Christ, have we not? Handpicked by grace. He's called us by grace into fellowship with himself. He has chosen to be our master and make us into his people. Even though we're sinners and we deserve nothing good, he's chosen us. He's called us, he's saved us, and he's decided to do good for us. Again, just briefly, we didn't choose him, right? He chose us to become his disciples, much like he chose his apostles. He summoned us to himself by the power of his Holy Spirit, and in that moment, we were made willing and able to come. And we came to him in faith. We came to him in faith whenever the Spirit of God enlightened us and we came to him trusting in him, and we were forgiven of all of our sins, and then we became his disciples, just like Jesus called the apostles to himself, and they became his disciples, and he appointed them as apostles. Likewise, we're taught by him as well. The apostles were taught by him face to face, and we, regular disciples, are taught by him through his word. I want to encourage you with this. Right? We have heard and believed his message just like they did. Judas being the obvious exception here. We have heard that he is indeed the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the long-awaited hope for God's people, that he's the Savior and Redeemer of sinners who come to him in faith. We've believed his message, and we've been taught his commandments as well. We've been taught their depth, the depth of the law of God, how they reveal our sin to us. And then after coming to him for salvation, we, we've seen how the law of God then teaches the forgiven sinner how to live a life that's pleasing to him. Just as the apostles spent time with Jesus, we have too. I hope you see yourself like this. The scriptures are sufficient. You've spent time with Jesus through his word. You, if you're a Christian, you are not lacking anything, even though you have never been face-to-face -face with him, even though we have never been face-to-face -face with him. We have a sure testimony. We have a true revelation of Christ and his teaching, and we have it in the scriptures. We're not missing anything. But again, the 12 were called by Christ and taught by Christ so that they could then be sent by Christ into the world to preach. Matthew Henry put it this way in his commentary. He said, they had received so they could give. They had been taught so they could teach. I like that. They received from Christ that they might give now. So Jesus, again, decides to make good use of them and he commissions them. He gathered himself, them to himself that he might then scatter them with his message. 
And this is every bit as true for us. We, having been called into salvation by grace, chosen to be disciples, and taught by Jesus Christ in his word, we too are now commissioned by him. As I said in the introduction, this short-term mission that Jesus sends his apostles on is a foreshadowing and small picture of the Great Commission. You guys know it well, but I'll read it to you for, for the sake of reminding you. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And this commission has been passed down from Jesus now to his church. And all of us have a part to play in it. All of us. If you're a disciple, you have a part in some way in this great commission. Do you see yourself in this light? This is the question that I have. Do you see yourself this way? As a disciple who has been called by Christ in order to then be sent out by him. Do you view yourself as someone with a job to do for the Lord Jesus? Not that he can't do anything by himself, but that he's been pleased to commission you to a task. I, I sincerely wonder if, if we all view ourselves as workers for Christ, as slaves or servants to the Lord Jesus. Right? That's how Paul and the other apostles constantly referred to themselves. Do you see yourself as a person who has been saved for a purpose? Because you have been. You've been saved for a purpose, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.10, that we might walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. We've been saved to glorify God. To glorify Him, I think, in two ways primarily. First, to glorify God by being living evidence that He is merciful to sinful people who don't deserve to be saved. You're living proof of God's mercy, Christian. And that brings glory to Him. But second, We've been saved that we might then glorify God by being changed from a useless sinner into a useful son and servant of God. That we would honor and glorify him in serving him, in going where he sends us, and doing as he commands. And I say that because obedience to God glorifies him because it declares that he is worthy of our obedience and worthy of our affections. What, I want, what I'm saying in this is I, I want to remind us all that we have not been saved so that we can then sit around and wait for glory. That's not why you've been saved. That is a benefit of your salvation, that you will receive glorification. But that's not the big reason why you've been saved. You've been saved so that you would then glorify God by being put to good use for his purposes and plans and honoring him in your life. This is a privilege to be commissioned by Christ. And I say it's a privilege because not all are given work to do by the master. Because not everyone belongs to him. If you've been commissioned by him, you are in a great place of privilege because you are one of his people. But everyone who does belong to him has been given a job. Every single one of us have been commissioned to give a witness to Jesus Christ in the world. To proclaim his gospel to sinners so that they can be saved. We all bear this privilege, responsibility, and duty to our Lord and Master. Right, so just as the apostles were sent out, so too we have been sent out by Jesus. In whatever way that we are able, with whatever gifts God has given, to whatever people, person, or group he has placed us in by his sovereign providence, we are called by him and sent out by him to declare him to the world. So that's the first principle we see in our text. As disciples are called by Jesus and taught by Jesus in order to be sent out by him. 
The second principle we see about discipleship in this text is that a disciple is to be focused. Verses 8 and 9. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. In these verses, we see Jesus giving very specific instructions to his apostles for this mission. He tells them, take nothing on your journey except a walking stick, the clothes that you're wearing, and the sandals on your feet. They are to take nothing extra with them. No money, no food, no bag to hold their stuff in because they're not going to take any stuff with them, right? Not even a change of clothes, not, not an extra staff, not an extra pair of shoes, nothing. He's telling them to travel light and take no provisions on that particular mission. And in telling them that they're to take nothing, but then sending them out, I think Jesus is implying a promise to make sure their most basic needs are met. We see this especially in Matthew's parallel account in Matthew 10, where he says the laborer deserves his food, right? So he's telling them, you'll have your food. Now, to be sure, again, I want to be clear, these instructions are specific and unique for this one mission that Jesus sent the apostles on. The command to take nothing with you and not prepare before you go out to do ministry was unique to this one mission. And we know that because in Luke 22, right before Jesus is taken away, he tells his disciples, uh, take a money bag, take a knapsack, and prepare for the worst, right? So he tells them, whenever I'm taken away to be crucified, prepare whenever you go out, right? So again, Jesus is not calling everyone here to extreme poverty, nor is he saying that we should never make preparation uh, before doing evangelistic work, Rather, he's promising them that they're going to have their needs met on this particular mission. They're going to have food. They're not going to die. They're going to have shelter at least most of the time. But I think Christ here wants his apostles to rely on his provision while they're gone, to rely on God to meet their most basic needs while they preached. Remember that. That's why he's sending them out. God's going to meet your needs. Don't worry about those things. Preach. He doesn't want them weighed down with a bunch of stuff or other worries. So he says, take nothing. I'll take care of you. Just go and go now. And then Jesus gives them more instructions. This will all come together in a minute. Specifically about their lodging situation in verse 10. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. He's telling them that if a house receives them, they're to stay. And a house receiving them is most likely a reference to the uh, Old Testament commands for hospitality. That... Uh, the people of Israel are to take in the traveler and sojourner and put them up uh, and feed them and make sure that they're taken care of. Not only that, but I think it's at least implied here that if someone's going to take in a pair of apostles, they're probably accepting the message that the apostles are going to be preaching while they're in that town as well. But Jesus says that whenever someone agrees to take them in, that's it. They're not to go anywhere else. They're not to stay in any other house. They're not to seek out nicer accommodations. Right? If, if a more wealthy person comes and says, hey, come stay with me for a while, they're to turn that person down and be content with the first place that takes them in. They are not to be looking for the most comfortable place. Rather, they're to be looking for an adequate place so that their needs will be met. This is not a pleasure trip for the apostles. They're sent out to do a job in the name and authority of the Lord Jesus. They are not sent out on a vacation here. Right? Not at all. They're to be faithful to the work that Jesus has given them. So again, he doesn't want them weighed down with worldly worries as he sends them out. So he tells them, take nothing. 
He wants them focused on their mission that he sent them out to do. So he tells them, don't look for better lodging or worry about money or any of that stuff. So all that is to say, here's the principle I think that we can apply from this. He wants them focused. I'm going to make sure your needs are met. Preach. When you go into a town, don't look for better lodging and better lodging and better lodging. Stay there, be content, and preach. He wants them to be focused. They're, they're to be ambassadors for him. They're to preach the gospel and perform miracles that verify their words. Essentially, they're to continue the work that Jesus has begun. And he does not want them to lose focus on why they have been sent. This speaks to us, I think. The principle here is timeless. The disciple is to stay focused. We must remain focused and not get caught up in things that would hinder us from proclaiming Christ. And I say that because proclaiming him, declaring the gospel, calling sinners to Christ is the main mission of the people of God. We must not lose sight of that. And I'm not saying that there are not other things that Christians are called to do. It's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that everything that we do is subservient to this one thing of bearing a witness to the world about Christ and proclaiming him with our mouths as we have opportunity. Everything we do is to be subservient to that. Again, I'm not telling you to ignore your children or ignore any of the other things that you have to do in life, but everything is to be subservient to that proclamation of the gospel. We can't lose sight of that. We cannot allow ourselves to become weighted down with anything that would keep us from doing our job. We have to leave things behind if necessary that would keep us from being fruitful and effective in proclaiming the gospel. But it's very easy for us to lose focus, isn't it? There are many temptations. There are many false, false paths that we can go down. Paths that seem good at first, but then ultimately end up leading us away from our mission. Even good things. Again, Tim Keller is really solid to say at least this much. We can take good things and make them ultimate things, right? And that becomes idolatry. We lose focus on what actually matters. But again, there are good things that we can elevate above the commission of Christ and end up losing sight of why God has saved us and why we're not in heaven yet. Paul said that he, the reason why he was still on earth, he says this in Philippians, because for me to stay here on earth, it means more fruitful labor. That's how Paul viewed his life. If I'm still on earth, there's still work that the Lord has for me to do. But it's really easy for us to forget that we are disciples and slaves of Christ who are on this earth to do his will and proclaim him. Some examples of things. I just have three that we can get wrapped up in. We can get too wrapped up in politics that we lose focus, can't we? You say things to yourself, or maybe if you're bold enough, you say things like this out loud. If the world would just be Republican, we would be fine. Or, if you're too conservative for the Republicans, and I feel you, if the world would just be conservative, then everything would be fine. Seriously, I know that I'm not the only person that's thought that, at least. So then what do you do? You go out and you try to convert people to your political party and your political philosophy, and you spend all of your effort and all of your time and all of your energy in that endeavor. But is that what we're called to do? Go, therefore, and make converts to a political or economic philosophy. No. We are called 
to go and proclaim Christ and him crucified so that sinners might be brought to repentance and faith and saved. We can lose sight of that. We can get too wrapped up in our comforts. Or the main pursuit, please hear this. I know this is easy to say, oh yeah, the comfort thing, the guilt trip for that. Seriously, just hear me out. The main pursuit of your life can quickly become just becoming more comfortable, more financially comfortable, where you're dead set on acquiring more. You, you, maybe, maybe set on the creature comforts that this world provides, where you just want the next big thing, where you're waiting for something bigger and better just so you can get your hands on it, and that's what you're waiting for. Or maybe just being entertained. Where you're constantly looking for the next mental escape from your responsibilities. Where you're looking for something else to be mesmerized by for a moment. And in both of those things, you can forget your mission. We can become too wrapped up in our children's extracurricular activities, can't we? Right, where you're constantly running here and there and signing them up for more and more, always trying to keep up with the other parents that you see on Facebook. Right, and I know that that's motivated at least in part because you love your children, and I'm not knocking that. But in pursuing those things for your kids, it's really easy to lose focus on your calling to your children. Specifically, the Great Commission extends to them, <laughs> to preach to them and disciple them. So you trade Christ's commission on you for your children for worldly things. I wish more parents would understand your kid's not going to play Major League Baseball, but your kid is going to die and stand before Jesus. But there are so many things fighting for our attention that it's like we can get spiritual amnesia and forget what we're supposed to be doing all along. And that's why we need passages like this to slap us awake so that we can soldier on in faithfulness to Christ. It's easy to forget and get caught up in other things, but we must not. We must remember why we're here. We must have a godly sense of urgency about our message, right? A godly urgency that requires us to keep busy with the work that the Master has given to us. We must continue our work and remain focused and not be put off from it for even some of the best things that the world has to offer. Brothers and sisters, eternity is too long and the glory of God is too great for us to lose focus on the work that the Lord Jesus has commissioned us to do. But now we come to our third heading about what it means to be a disciple. It's this. A disciple is to expect rejection and know how to handle it. Verse 11. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. You'll remember last week that before sending out the apostles in, in this week's text, Jesus has just been rejected at Nazareth. And after this evening's passage, next week we're going to start studying the death of John the Baptist, who was killed because he was faithful to God. This chapter, at least in part, is about rejection for Christ's sake. Jesus was rejected, so his disciples can be, expect to be rejected as well as they go out and proclaim him. But in this verse, we see Jesus giving instructions to the apostles about what to do if nobody receives you. Which, if you think about it, is implying that there will indeed be times when they're rejected. He says, this is what you do when that happens. Or our text says, if that happens. So again, he's saying, be prepared for it to happen. Because in all reality, it's going to happen. There's going to be times when no one hears their message, when no one wants anything to do with them. There are going to be times when they are mocked and scorned and reviled and even kicked out of places for the sake of Christ and his truth. 
A quick note here, Christ wants his followers to be prepared. I've always appreciated this about Jesus, the longer that I'm a Christian, right? The more I grow to appreciate it, but I've always appreciated this. He's very upfront with his people, isn't he? He doesn't promise us a bed of roses as disciples because he is God and cannot lie. He's not a liar, so he doesn't promise us things that aren't true. He tells us straight up that since the world has hated him, the world will hate his disciples as well. The world hated him as he preached, so they will hate us as we preach as well. Brothers and sisters, we are to expect this. Our message will offend the ungodly and unbelieving. It offended you once, didn't it? You didn't always want to listen to the Lord. So therefore, we ought not be surprised when the world rises up against the disciples of Jesus, because the world did the same to him. And I'll be straight with you. This doesn't make it hurt any less when the day comes when you are rejected and hated because you proclaim righteousness. And some of you know that already. That it hurts. And knowing this doesn't take the pain away. But knowing ahead of time that Jesus warns you of this will help you. Because then you can brace yourself and begin to pray that God would prepare you now to suffer rejection and hatred and persecution by the unbelieving world. He wants you to be prepared. But what are we to do when we're rejected? When people say, I don't believe that junk. I don't want to hear that stuff about Jesus. Get out of here. I don't want anything to do with you. In verse 11, Jesus tells his apostles to shake off the dust that is on their feet as a testimony against a town that won't receive them. That seems weird to us, but this is really cool. This is actually an old Jewish practice. Back then, whenever a Jew would visit uh, a foreign land, a pagan land, whenever they got back to Israel, before they crossed the border, they would shake the dust off their feet so as not to pollute the Holy Land with pagan dirt. This was meant to symbolically or ritualistically cleanse themselves from unholy people or an unholy land. And Jesus says, disciples, that's what you do whenever you leave a town that will not listen to you. They won't accept the message of the gospel that you preach. The disciples in doing this were actually declaring that the Jewish towns that they went to who rejected them were no different than the Gentiles. They're no different than the pagans. Shaking the dust off of their feet was meant to be a symbol of God's coming judgment upon those who would not receive them. It was a symbolic declaration that the wrath of God remained upon that town because the people rejected Jesus. Christ is telling his apostles to leave the towns that reject them and move on to the next town, but to leave the rejecting town with a warning of God's judgment. Now, I want to be clear, this was not a hateful or spiteful thing Jesus commanded them to do. He doesn't say, do this while laughing with a spiteful smile upon your face. Rather, it's meant to be a stern reminder to the people of the town that they might repent as they think on what they've seen. What a reminder here that all who refuse to come to Christ in faith and repentance are under the wrath of God. What a reminder of how serious the business is that Christ has sent us out to do. We lose sight of this, don't we? Hell is an abstract reality for most of us. Right? It's just like this thing, like, yeah, I believe in hell. But, like, think about this for a moment. What a reminder. The wrath of God is coming. Eternal destinies are on the line. For someone to reject the message that we preach to them is for them to reject their only hope of salvation. So we are to warn. When someone will not receive us or our message, we are to leave them with a warning. Please hear me, Christian. You are not to leave them uh, trying to make them feel better. 
about their rejection of Christ. You're not to leave them with a smile or false comfort that says, well, that's just what our religion says, so take it or leave it. No. And we're not to leave them with any ambiguity about what their rejection of Christ means for their eternity. Right? It's not Jesus or be eternally annihilated. It's Jesus or the eternal wrath of God. We can't leave any ambiguity about what their fate will be should they not accept our message. This is too serious for that. Hell is too hot for that. God's wrath is too real for that. Judgment is actually coming, so we are to warn. Plainly and clearly warn people of the wrath to come against them if they will not receive Christ. But no matter how harshly we are rejected, we are not to modify the message, are we? No matter what it costs, if we're run out of the public square, if we lose our jobs, if we're hated by even our closest friends and family, Jesus does not say, tone it down a little bit next time when you go to the next town. No, he says, give them the warning. He does not say, sugarcoat the message and make it more palatable for those who hate me. He says, give them the warning and go on. We have no right to ever modify even a modicum of Christ's gospel. We must be faithful. We have to be prepared to be rejected by many. They hated him. They will hate us as well. And now to our fourth heading. A disciple proclaims. Verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Very simply here, both the apostles and disciples, both them and us, have been sent out to proclaim. And we proclaim that everyone everywhere must repent and believe the message of Jesus. Now, I want to be clear, because sometimes people get fuzzy with this. On their side of the cross, this is prior to Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, I believe that their proclamation would have looked a little bit different from ours. I think it would have been a little bit more vague. Right? They did not yet understand everything that we do. We've actually been placed in a very privileged position. We have the scriptures completed, the apostolic message completed in its fullness. They would have proclaimed, I think, that Messiah had come. That everything points to Jesus being that Messiah. That the kingdom of God had come with the coming of Jesus. And that God was going to redeem both Israel and the Gentiles through Jesus. Not only that, but that ungodly Israel needed to repent and turn back to God because the kingdom has come. And should they not repent and believe the message, they will be excluded from God's kingdom and placed under his judgment. I think that's what the apostles would have preached as they went from village to village. But now with what we know, our proclamation is more specific than theirs, but not contradictory to what they preached. We are to proclaim the righteousness of God. That he is just and holy and will punish the wicked and that all men are wicked and have sinned against him. We are to proclaim that God's wrath is coming against the ungodly and that they will be excluded from the kingdom of God because of their sins and cast into eternal hell. But we are also to proclaim that because God is merciful, he has provided entrance into the kingdom of God through his son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that entrance into the kingdom was secured in the death and resurrection of the Messiah, who was crucified and suffered God's wrath in place of the wicked so that they could be forgiven and enter into God's kingdom. And that to enter his kingdom and live forever with God, all you must do is repent and believe upon Jesus, the Messiah, who is king of that kingdom and who was raised from the dead and has secured entrance into the kingdom for sinners. That's our proclamation. Now, many of us would stop there, wouldn't we? 
Is a, pay attention here. This rocked me this week. When we're preaching the gospel, I know a lot of us would stop right there. Right? We declare that God is just and holy, that there is wrath for the wicked, that all men are wicked, but God has provided forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Christ for all who repent and believe. That's about it. Right? Like I'm not, I'm not being a smart aleck or anything. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That's where we usually stop. Read verse 12 again. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. This leapt off the page to me. The element that is most often missing from our proclamation of Christ and his gospel is the call to respond. That's what's missing most of the time for us. The apostles went out and preached that people should repent. That they ought to do it. This is an imperative. That they must repent or they will perish. It wasn't an abstract thing for them. It was not a theoretical, theological proposition that merely says God will forgive those who repent. No, for the apostles, and it should be the same for us, they said you should repent. You should repent. Will you repent? You'll perish if you don't. You must repent. There was a sense of urgency in the apostles when they preached. They didn't leave anything open-ended. They always called for a response. Now, we forget this, or we just choose to not do it. I'm not sure which one is true for you, but it's one or the other. To forget to call people to respond to the gospel. Hear me, if you're one who says, why well, forget to do that? To forget to call people to respond to the gospel that we preach is to miss the point of Christ's commission entirely. When we declare Christ, we are not declaring Christ for the sake of informing people of some facts. We proclaim Christ in order to see sinners repent and believe. So to not call people to repent and to not call for a response misses the point entirely of why we've been sent out. But I think a lot of us don't forget, but we're afraid to call for a response. Because that is the part of evangelism that is most offensive. Right, you see, there's a way to evangelize, and I think most of us are guilty of this. There's a way to evangelize where you don't ever make direct statements to the person you're speaking to, but you keep it kind of vague. You say things like, if a person doesn't trust in Jesus, they will perish. Or you tell them, we believe that unless people repent, they will go to hell. You see how vague that is? I don't believe that's what the apostles did when they preached the gospel. Verse 12 says they preached that people should repent. They said, in effect, no, 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 you will perish if you don't trust in Jesus. God says that you will go to hell if you don't repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. And I'm not saying that they were rude when they did it, but I'm saying that that's what they said. And that's why people hated them. Because they called for a response. It was not theoretical. They were preaching to real people and calling for real repentance and faith. They were personal because they wanted to see people come to Jesus. They understood why they had been sent out. So they preached personally to people. They did not allow it to be vague. There was an imperative in their preaching. And it was repent and believe on Christ. We must proclaim the gospel, and we must proclaim it as clearly and masterfully as we can, but we cannot leave it in the abstract. We must call men and women to personally repent and believe on Christ, because a disciple proclaims, 
And no proclamation of Christ is complete without a call to respond. But now we come to our last point, and it is very, very brief. A disciple goes. Read verse 12 again. So they went out. They went out. Simply put, they went. They just went. Christ called them. He taught them. He commissioned them. He sent them out to proclaim his message, and they just went. They obeyed the call of their master. They didn't make excuses. Even though he told them, don't even take any food with you. They made no excuses in this text. They recognized that they had been called to Jesus so they could be sent. So they just went where he told them to go and did what he told them to do. They recognized that they were under his authority and lordship, so they did what he commanded. They obeyed him with quick, submissive, and sweet obedience. Brothers and sisters, this is how we bring glory to our master, Lord, God, and King, Jesus. By quickly and gladly going where he sins and following where he leads. The heart of the disciple says, where you lead me, Lord, I will follow. Where you send me, I will go. Whatever you tell me to say, I will say. I am yours. Do with me as you will. So will you go then? That's the question of the hour, Christian. You can learn all this stuff in theory. Will you go? Will you go? Will you accept the call of the master? Will you remain focused on the work he has laid before you? Will you be willing to bear scorn and rejection but go anyway? Will you go and proclaim repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you go? If you are a disciple, you must. You must hearken to the word of your master and go. In whatever way you are able, to whatever people you are able to proclaim to, you must go. But I want to leave you with some encouragement to do the work. Again, very, very brief. The apostles who were sent that day were not perfect. They weren't. They will go on throughout the rest of this gospel account to make some glaring mistakes. Things that we make fun of them for, if we're going to be honest, right? Things that we laugh about whenever we read the gospels. They're still going to go do those things. At this time, they did not yet understand everything, and they would not understand everything until Jesus was raised from the dead. They do not yet have perfect theology, but Jesus calls them to go anyway. While they're still green, Jesus sends them out. And that's because the true power to do the work, to build Christ's kingdom, rests in Christ and his ability to save sinners. It rests in God. The power is not in how strong or good or smart that the disciples are. But all the power rests in Christ to accomplish his work of building his kingdom. And he is pleased to use weak, insignificant, still growing disciples to do it. So go. Go. In the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, go. Be confident in him. Confident that he is the one who sends you into the world to proclaim him. And that he is the one who will be faithful to help you. You only have to go. Obey the call of your master. This is what it means to be a disciple. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that we could sit under the preaching of your word this Sabbath day. 
God, I pray that you would seal this message to our hearts, that you'd seal this text to our hearts, that we might see more clearly that being a disciple means to be a person on mission always. God, I pray that you grant us repentance if we've lost our focus. Grant us repentance if we don't view ourselves as servants. God, we have received that we might give. Help us to see that. We've been taught that we might teach. You've forgiven us that we might go and, de and, and declare the forgiveness of sins to the world. Help us to be focused on that. Help us to bear rejection in a way that pleases you. Help us to warn. Help us to proclaim. Help us to call for a response. God, help us to just go. That's what it comes down to, Lord. We, we will not go until you break us. So, Lord, I pray that you'd put it in our hearts to do as you command. Please bless us. You are worthy, Lord. Help us to obey. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.